Today's episode is the follow-up to our story on the Twin Coves fire. If you haven't listened to Twin Coves Part 1, I recommend you go back and listen to that first, as today's story builds on the events of the first episode. When we left off, two firefighters, Ed Metters and Charlie Rogers, had just lost their lives battling a house fire on Twin Cove Street in Dallas. It was a gut-wrenching loss of two fine men. But before we continue with the Twin Cove story, I want to tell you about the Crockers of Saratoga Springs in upstate New York. There we find Denton Crocker, or Dent for short, and his lovely wife, Jean Marie. Their first child was born in 1947, and they named him Denton Jr., but everyone called him by his nickname, Mogi. Two more children would follow, and they became a close-knit family of five. Mogi would grow up to be a studious and principled young man. He loved studying history, and he loved his country. At 17, he wanted more than anything to fight for his country, but his parents wouldn't allow him to enlist in the Army, so he ran away from home. Denton and Jean-Marie were worried sick, and when Mogi finally called home, they worked out a truce. His parents agreed to sign the papers for him to enlist, and Mogi, in turn, agreed to come home. Soon, Mogi was in basic training, and by autumn of 1965, he was serving with the 101st Airborne in South Vietnam. A year and a half later, Jean Marie was in her front yard when she was confronted with a sight no mother ever wants to see. A priest, accompanied by two men in uniform, were walking up the sidewalk to her house. A sight that immediately communicates that the world as you know it has suddenly and violently ended. She ran up to one of the uniformed men and said, No, not my beautiful boy. Don't say it as if through sheer strength of will, she could will the world, her world, not to end. But life as she knew it had already ended when she first laid eyes on those men in their uniforms. If the story sounds familiar, it is probably because you have heard Mrs. Crocker tell this story herself in Ken Burns' amazing documentary on the Vietnam War. And if you haven't seen that documentary, you should. I've had a lot of people tell me they can't watch it, that it just sounds too sad, and I get that. At the end of a long day of work, we would all rather just escape with something light and easy. Nothing heavy, just something that allows us to turn the brain off for a while, right? But sitting in a recliner with your beverage of choice and watching something sad is not the same level of sacrifice that our soldiers and their families made for us. So maybe taking a virtual walk in their shoes from the comfort of our living room is not too much to ask. Watching the show, one of the things that made a lasting impression on me was what a debt we owe to our gold star families like the Crockers. It's not just the fallen themselves. Honestly, we can't do anything for them anyway. It's too late. It's the ones they leave behind that are utterly devastated that we need to be there for. And by now, you've probably figured out where I'm going with this, which is that the fire service has its own Gold Star families, and we owe them a debt that we can never repay. I imagine in some jobs that the support provided by a company when they lose a worker due to an accident is minimal. 
uh, we're sorry for your loss. Here's his last paycheck and the contents of his locker. Maybe they send some flowers to the funeral, along with a sympathy card offering thoughts and prayers. But I'm proud to say that the Dallas Fire Department takes great care to honor the fallen and to care for their families. But how does that happen? In the immediate aftermath of a tragedy, everyone feels bad and wants the best for the families. But sympathy and good intentions are not enough. Those emotions are too ephemeral to be effective long term. Our story today involves the department's response to the incident, and it includes a story of two unsung heroes who have helped firefighters and their families cope with loss, grief, survivor's guilt, PTSD, you name it. They have unfortunately had to be the person in uniform telling the Mrs. Crockers of the world that their worst nightmare is now a reality. But they've also been there for those same family members to help them in any way possible, and not just for the short term, but from then on. The unsung heroes I want to talk about today are Denny Burris, the fire department's first full-time chaplain, and Elaine Maddox, the fire department's current full-time chaplain. There have been other chaplains in between who have also served with distinction, and I salute all of them. But these two, even though Elaine was not a fire department chaplain at the time, are part and parcel of our story about the Twin Coast tragedy. But before we get too far into our story, since these two figures who are central to our story are both chaplains, let's take a moment to ask, what does the word chaplain mean and where did it come from? To answer that, we have to go back to the 4th century when a soldier in the Roman army came across a beggar dressed only in rags who was freezing. The soldier had mercy on the beggar, took his sword, cut his own cape in half, and gave half to the beggar to save him from freezing to death. That soldier eventually left the Roman army, would become the Bishop of Tours in France, and eventually be canonized as none other than St. Martin. And what became of St. Martin's half-cape? Well, it became a holy relic that kings would ride into battle with, and which was used when oaths were sworn and when not in use, would be closely guarded. Now, the Latin word for cape is kappa, and the diminutive of kappa, as would be used for just half a cape, is capella. And it came to be that a small church built to hold the little cape was called the same thing. It was called a capella. And this is where we get our English word chapel from. And in like fashion, a priest who was a keeper of the cape, would be called a capellanu. And you'll have to forgive my pronunciation since I don't know Latin or Italian or French. I'm going to butcher all of these. But um, eventually, all priests who served in the military were called capellani, or in French, chapelain. And from that, we get our English word, chaplain. On a related note, you may also be familiar with the term a cappella, which means to sing without any added musical instrumentation. For example, the currently popular singing group Pentatonics is an a cappella group. To sing a cappella means to sing in the chapel style, for example, with only a choir. So the term a cappella also owes its origins to St. Martin's Cape. Chaplains have a long history of military service, and an untold number have been killed in battle over the years. 
Like medics, they aren't shooting at anyone, but they are right there in the danger zone. As an example of that, my great-uncle, Lieutenant Edwin Hampton, who was a chaplain in World War II, lost his head, quite literally, in the Battle of the Bulge when it was removed from his person, courtesy of German artillery fire. Now, chaplains in the fire service do not normally face those same dangers as those serving in war zones, but that would be small comfort to the family of New York Fire Department Chaplain Michael Judge, who was on scene and killed when the Twin Towers collapsed. Armed now with a small bit of history about the origins of the chaplaincy, I'd like to speak more specifically about it in relation to the Dallas Fire Department. The DFD chaplaincy was not always a full-time position. It used to be a strictly volunteer role filled at any given time by some local man of the cloth who was not otherwise affiliated with the department. The first small change in that was when Denny Burris, a firefighter assigned to Station 33, agreed to take on the role of department chaplain as an additional job duty in addition to his regular work as a firefighter. Denny had no way of knowing that by accepting this extra job duty, he would soon be baptized by fire when the Twin Coves incident happened, and he found himself thrown into the briar patch of line-of-duty death funeral planning and the myriad of things that go into that, along with simultaneously being there and providing support for the families of the fallen and the firefighters who responded. I talked to Denny Burris to get some background on this. You were a full-time firefighter with additional duties as a ch- as a chaplain. Yes. Uh, you were assigned to Station 33. Yes. And uh, were you on duty uh, when this uh, happened or, or when you were notified? Yes, and we were notified by the speakers whenever they opened up, mm-hmm. and they told us about the death of members. Really, they Rock. did that over the station radio yeah. channel. Yeah, that was something they just— needed to I see. Let uh, everybody inform know. the people. Mm-hmm. So we were s- standing around the fire station talking about Metters and Rogers. And then the main line rang, <clears throat> and they said, need to speak to Burris. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I got on telephone, and they said, um, you were being asked to... to go and make notification mm. to the family. I went, oh, man. And so we uh, just, okay, deputy chief will come out there and get you and take you where you need to go. So Hatcher was the deputy chief at that time, and I can't remember whether he was deputy chief or just a battalion chief, but he came to the station, <clears throat> picked me up, and we went to Charlie, Charlie Rogers' home. Now, on the other side of town, there was another individual, and I can't remember who it was, that was assigned the responsibility to go to Karen Metter's home and make in notification to her. So my responsibility was to go to Linda Rogers and make notification with her. And, boy, that's when my mind began to whirl. And how on earth this was the first for me to ever make any notification of a line-of-duty death. So I was picked up, and we headed over to... 
West Oak Cliff. And that's whenever I had my first experience of notifying Linda about the death of Charlie. So brand new chaplain Denny Burris, along with Chief Hatcher and the paramedics on 726, go to make notification to Charlie Rogers' family. And simultaneously, on the other side of town, a different entourage makes their way to Ed Metter's home to notify his family. The captain at Station 56, Captain B.B., who had been off duty that day, was contacted and asked to make this notification, and he did, along with others, assigned to go with him to assist in breaking the news, including rookie firefighter Tom Burns, the sole surviving member of Truck 56 that day. And the reason I'm telling you about this is that would never happen today. That young man had already been through enough for one day, but this was 40 years ago, and at that time, no one really thought about the mental health of first responders. If you weren't physically bleeding, you were expected to just shake it off. We'll talk more about that, but for now, let's go back to Steve Maddox. Steve, you will recall from episode one, was the other young firefighter who was caught in a roof collapse at the fire and barely escaped himself. Steve's backstory was that he had been a school teacher, and upon seeing that there had been a referendum that was giving firefighters a significant raise, he quit his teaching job and took a job with the fire department so his wife, Elaine, could stay home and raise the children. I asked Steve about that next morning after the fire. So you've gotten out at this point, ran over two guys on your way out in such a hurry to get out, and you get out. Was that a huge moment of relief? And, uh, you know, what was running through your head at that point in time? I have no idea. Yeah. Uh, Did you go and tell the, the chief in charge, uh, you know, that about your experience or uh, at that no, time? No. I didn't. I didn't say anything. I don't think I said anything to anybody. I remember somebody asking me if I was okay, and I said, yeah, I'm okay, mm-hmm. not realizing when I – that night, mm-hmm. uh, the next night, Lane goes, do you realize you got burns all over your back? Mm-hmm. And that tells you how – I guess how scared I was because I had no idea I got burned. I just – all I, all of my wow. thought pattern was just get wow. out of there. So, you know. Uh, so you had burned, but you didn't get treated for those burns. No, because I didn't know, you know, mm-hmm. I didn't know that stuff went down there. Because yeah. what happened is, is when the that the roof uh, fell in and all that, you know, I had my breathing, all that. It knocked my helmet off. It knocked mm-hmm. my mask off. And the good thing is that's when it ventilated. Mm-hmm. So all, you know, you couldn't see anything. But then when it did that, then, you know, all the smoke and stuff went the out. Heat. Yeah, heat. everything went out. So... You know, of course, at the time, being on that months, I had no idea that's what happens. Mm-hmm. All I know is is that that's, now I knew what happened. But, you know, it's and it's just the fact that the next shift we go back over there and I look and see where I was standing and I couldn't believe I was, must have been standing in one spot that, you know, because it, it, it was probably – enough debris in that that big area that was probably about seven or eight feet tall mm-hmm. you know wow so but far as knowing what i thought after i got out i don't know what i i have no idea all i know is once it's over with i i remember leaving and uh you know back then i, I did a 
I went, I think I might have went and done a yard just to get my head clear. And then I thought to myself, you know, biggest problem was I'm here. I'm feel, I felt guilty because they took my line in, you know, and I'm thinking, you know what? That should have been me, not them. And so the tough part I got out of this whole fire was it, I, I carried a, I, I, I can just, I can tell the truth now. I felt terribly guilty because I thought, you know what, it wasn't fair that they took my line in because, you know, my chief tells me to put it my line down and do something else and they take my line in and they die and I didn't. So, you know, I guess more than anything, you know, of course I didn't think of that that morning. I was but, you know, as the days, minutes, hours, weeks, you know, it just you know, it just weighs on you thinking, you know, you know, why did they have to die and I didn't, you know. So it, it was it 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 took a toll of my life and you know of course back then elaine she'll tell you the stories you know elaine had no idea about the fire department she uh was she was a school teacher like that and she uh headed to uh work that morning and not knowing it and the i guess y'all going to be really this is the ironic of this this you know this was ray hunt's house and the first day for my oldest brother to go to work for Ray Hunt was that day. Well, that's a real coincidence. Uh, I tell you, you know, like that. And uh, my brother called Elaine that morning and said, you know, was Steve working? And Elaine said yes. And he never told Elaine. I, I, that got upset because I thought he did, but he just, he's just told Elaine, okay, and he's hung up. And then we'll let Elaine elaborate on that. But, you know, this this fire was a tragedy for, you know, for the fire department. But you know what? The biggest blessing that came out of this is, you know, Elaine, it made Elaine realize how important the fire department was. And everybody knows now how important Elaine is to the fire department. You know, this was Very a tra- this was a tragedy. But, you know, that uh, over the years, we've learned that, you know, a lot of line of duty deaths are tragedies, but a lot of good positive thing come out of it. And the biggest positive that really came, one of the biggest, I won't say the positive, but you know, Lane got involved with the fire department. I'm going to let her tell that story, what took place, because she – but anyway, it, it – it, yeah. Okay. Well, uh, Chaplain Maddox, Elaine, uh, first question for you actually is uh, what Steve described, would that be an example of survivor's guilt? Yes. Okay. And uh, Steve, back then, uh, I don't believe we had a critical incident stress management team did any did the fire department offer you any uh, help for uh, dealing with this at all? Absolutely not. And mm-hmm. I didn't tell Elaine. I just told Elaine that a real easy story. I didn't tell Elaine the truth. I didn't tell her that I was nearly killed mm-hmm. for what twenty years, twenty five mm-hmm. years. I never told her. I just kept it to myself, and I kept out all of it. You kept back then. You just kept it to yourself, and you dealt with it yourself. Yeah. Well, I know you did because I worked, uh, I worked around you at two different stations and, uh, you know, overall all those years ago, and you never said a word about it to me. I had, I had no idea you were at this fire until recently. So Mm. yeah, you kept that inside a long time. Yep. Um, well, Elaine, tell us a little bit about, um, how things evolved as a, uh, in the fire service and, uh, the chaplaincy uh, in response to this incident? Well, like Steve said, I had uh, his brother call that morning. I really didn't think a whole lot about it. And I took my daughter to the babysitter. Mm-hmm. And when I, I dropped her off and I was in the car and I heard that 
on the radio that morning that they had had two Dallas firefighters die an early morning fire, and they told basically the location, and they were notifying the families or trying to find the families. So, of course, your heart drops, and I, between my house and where I worked at Reed Junior High School, uh, we had a friend, and I stopped at her house. Of course, it was before cell phones, knocked on the door, and uh, just asked her if I could use the phone. At that point, Steve had gotten back to Station 7, and he and I said, are, are you okay? I think is my response, and he said, yes, I'm fine. So I got back in the car, and when I, but the, the thing that was most interesting, I think, when I came out of the house was, uh, I've got to find some wives that their husbands do this job because it was, I mean, I didn't think it would, I mean, I didn't think that I would have to deal with um, life and death as a, I mean, I just didn't know enough about, very much about the fire service. Mm-hmm. So I got involved in the auxiliary of the Dallas Firefighters Association right after that, which is right after August of, of uh, that year. And uh, kind of the rest is history, mm-hmm. but I think a lot of what I do or what I've done with the auxiliary and also in the chaplaincy is a result of just having that feeling that I'm not the person at the memorial services sitting in the chair. I'm not the widow. So. So, Elaine, um, a little bit ago you were alluding to your teaching school, and then we kind of got talking about the fire department and chaplaincy and and whatnot. So the listener is probably wondering or could be wondering, what about the transition? So how did that happen, your transition from school teaching to fire department, uh, which I know you became an inspector, and then mm-hmm. and take us through your to becoming the chaplain for the okay. Dallas Fire Rescue. Okay, I taught until May of 1982, and our second daughter was born in August of 1982. As I said before, I got involved with the auxiliary and had some great mentors in uh, uh, Joyce Mentor, Glenda Varner, and some other women who were married to firefighters and had a lot of experience uh, in their involvement with the department. They were all involved in the auxiliary, so they would. I would say that they had probably the biggest imp- made the biggest impression upon my life. So um, fast forward that to maybe two thousand five, two thousand six, and my youngest daughter was going to get married, and so I went back and spoke with some of the, the teachers I had taught with. And they told me, they said, I said, you know, what do you think? I'm look, kind of looking for something extra to do. You know, should I come back to teaching? They said no. And Steve came home one day and he said, Elaine, he goes, you have an education degree. And I taught the gift and talented program at Reed Junior High School in Duncanville. I think you'd enjoy being a fire inspector because you'd go out and inspect and then, you know, you could be able to apply the, your education uh, knowledge and uh, to being able to do inspections. So that's the way it all started. And then... They were looking for people to help in the chaplain's office um, to be re- more or less reserved chaplains or, or assistant chaplains. And I volunteered to do that. Debbie, Debbie Carlin was over the chaplains at the time, and I volunteered to do that. About what year would that have been that you started in doing the chaplaincy assisting? Well, probably 2010. Okay. Her. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Mm. Anyway, so that, and so I did that, and then uh, when but, they had But an- she left out one thing. Is from 1982 to 2007, she volunteered all those years, and she helped Denny uh, do a lot of stuff with the chat. Uh, being, you know, if he needed help during his chaplaincy and stuff like that, 
Denny, uh, Elaine was a phone call away to help Denny and Ray Reed, uh, encouraged Elaine to, you know, get involved and stuff like that. So Elaine actually volunteered for 25 years for the fire department, didn't make a dime, but did a lot for the fire department. So that's why I'm saying, you know, this fire was a tragedy, but it, out of that tragedy came someone that really has a heart to take care of firefighters. And that's what it was. So a lot of people don't realize that for 25 years, she did a lot of stuff for the fire department that a lot of people didn't know, but you know. And 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 you bring up a good point. A lot of people, I think, don't realize what all uh, chaplain in the fire department does. And uh, uh, so, for the listeners that might think uh, a chaplain is going around conducting uh, religious services or something, uh, that is not, in fact, really what uh, a chaplain does. Elaine, um, can you tell us a little bit about some of the uh, types of things that you do or have done as a chaplain. Yeah, I'll be happy to do that. One thing I, I wanted to add also mm-hmm. is that at one point I was the president for the Texas, the auxiliary of the Texas State Association of Firefighters. Mm-hmm. So I traveled a lot throughout the state helping locals establish auxiliaries and just the meaning of mm-hmm. what it could do to the, for the fire department. Uh, the chaplain's office has a lot of different roles, uh, as you said, uh, Chief Hampton, the role of doing funeral services and doing weddings and the ceremonial part really is a very small part of what, what I do. A lot of it has to do with some of the things that Steve mentioned and coming alongside firefighters, being sensitive to what is going on in the life of a firefighter. If something happens, we have a firefighter who dies in the line of duty or we have a firefighter who's injured who's injured, how that affects not only the family, but also how does it affect the the other firefighters that they work with or firefighters at the scene. So there's a lot of things that are involved with that. And I think, I think the thing that, that I, I don't want to say I enjoy it, but I get the most reward from in the chaplain's office is walking alongside firefighters when things happen. Because I see, I have an opportunity since I've been involved in the department for for a while to see the the growth that takes place in the family and also the goodness of our firefighters who go through experiences and are willing to help other firefighters should they have the same experience, such as a loss of a child or or a, fi- a house fire or something like that. We have we have great great firefighters and great people that really exemplify the brotherhood that we speak of. So you really serve as, as kind of a lifeline for the firefighters when tragedy strikes in one form or another. Uh, may I ask, uh, has the fire department done anything for the families of Metters and Rogers after this fire? Were they there for them in any way? Yes. Tell me about that. And I'd, I'd like to also just expound on what we do, what we do, period, for families. Mm-hmm. Um, recently or over the past several years, when uh, when Ed's um, father passed away, when his mother passed away, uh, we had presence from the, from the station in which Ed worked at both of their services. Mm-hmm. We also have done a lot of different things. It just depends on the need, and I'm going to brag on Steve, <laughs> because Ed's, uh, Ed's sister— uh, her name is Cheryl Gaddy. Uh, she had a situation with a, a cabin that she had, and Steve went and stayed a couple of days helping her. She she let us know what the need was. He went and helped her. We also, a lot of our widows, I tell them if they have things that happen, such as uh, garage doors or whatever might happen, may, may break, call us first. Mm-hmm. Because we have firefighters that do things off-duty, and yeah. they're willing to 
you know, they're willing to step in and help and come alongside the families. We also have uh, our our great people like Captain Janet Cowan, uh, Lieutenant Diane Swanner, retiree Susan Loki, mm-hmm. uh, and people that, that do different things, that they take the crafts and abilities they have to, um, you know, bless the firefighters. But we do that. If we find out that a firefighter's child is graduating from high school and they've been one of our line of duty firefighters, um, we step in there. We help the if, when their co- kids go to college. We help them. We we uh, provide the documentation they need in order for them to be able to get benefits that they're they, that they are uh, entitled to. So there's any number of things that we do, but and those are just some things that we've that we've done to try to help. I have continual conversation and communication with Cheryl Gaddy, who's Ed's. Um, Ed's sister with Karen Metters, who they both, uh, who's Ed's wife, and they both live in Florida, as well as um, as uh, Charlie's stepdaughter, mm-hmm. which she ca- she considers him to be her dad. Oh, so, is that right? That's correct. Charlie Rogers' stepdaughter yes. considers mm-hmm. him to be her dad. That's correct. That's yeah, that now, much of an is this the same uh, girl who ended up marrying uh, firefighter Ed Bateman? Yes, it is. Okay. Teresa. Teresa. Yes. Okay, just a quick aside about Ed Bateman, the firefighter who would later marry Charlie Rogers' daughter. When I arrived at Station 4 in 1983, Ed was the second driver there. Everyone took turns cooking, but the story was that Ed was a Fairmont-trained chef, and the Bubba's had briefly appointed him to serve as a station cook but they soon learned he wouldn't make traditional fire station fare, such as chicken fried steak with mashed potatoes and gravy every shift. So they fired their Fairmont trained chef and went back to rotating the cooking duties so they could get back to their pot roast and fried pork chops and such. I think if I was limited to just one story to describe to you what fire station culture is like, or at least what it was like in the 1980s, I think it might be that right there. But Ed was truly a class act. He knew a lot of Dallas history, and I was hoping to have him on the podcast one day to share some stories with us. But he passed before we got that chance. And just like that, a lifetime of knowledge and experience is gone forever. Let's go back to Elaine. I'd like to say something, because... I've I've attended many line of duty death funerals, not only in Dallas but outside of Dallas. I would match our department against any department the way we take care of our line of duty death families. And nothing makes me more upset than than to think that I might go to a service in a city and they'll say we'll never forget, and they're not taking care of the families. Yeah, they do to forget. me, that's yeah. Yeah. To, to me that's part of it. And the thing mm-hmm. that the thing that I think makes um, the chaplaincy with the Dallas Fire Department unique is that you're never by yourself doing anything. And all those people I mentioned, the Janet Cowans, the mm-hmm. Diane Swanners, mm-hmm. the different organizations we have within the fire department, I never feel like I'm doing anything by the friends. I never feel like I'm doing anything by myself. They all come alongside to help and, and to encourage the families, and they also know um, just like the friends, our, our line of duty death families know they can depend on them. The friends of the fire department yes, you're sir. referring yes, to? Yes, sir. Okay. Yeah. See, in, in 1996, Ray Reed and all them uh, did a memorial service for the first time in probably 30 years or maybe never. And so, you know, of course, Lane wasn't working for the department at the time, so she helped out and stuff like that. 
And from there, there was probably, what, 30 maybe or 20 that they found that year in 96. And then and uh, they started doing it every five years, so year 2000, a little bit more. And then the last one, which was 2015, we didn't have a 2020 because of COVID. But, you know, they had found everybody except maybe five or six line of duty deaths. But the special thing about this is, is that Elaine Maddox has taken care of all the back line of duties back to John Clark. If you could ask Elaine, she can tell you the history of a lot of them. You know, a lot of these are great, great nieces and grandkids and stuff like that. But Elaine has made contact with all of them and keeps up with all of them, not just from 1980, but we're talking about way back. And so it's a lot of people just don't realize how special Elaine is. You know, I get to see it every day, 24 hours, seven days a week. And she overworks herself a lot. And I, my famous quote, and she'll shake her head, is I, I had to tell her every once in a while, to, you know, you need to eat. And the other one is uh, you're going to have to sleep sometime too. But anyway, but, you know, it, it, it's it, it, she, she's incredible. I mean, that's all I can say. And, you know, if anybody, I don't care who it is, has a problem, she's going to solve it. And if she can't solve it, like she says, she's got a lot of people that come behind her and helps her out. Because, I mean, she, she's right. She could. There's no way she could do it all this by herself. And so there's a lot of people in this department that step up to the plate and helps, too. So, But anyway, she does a lot that a lot of people don't realize. And it's, it's something that uh, this Dallas Fire Department is surely going to miss when she leaves because – I don't think anybody will be able to match what she does. And the reason they can't match it is because she does it from the heart. She doesn't do it because it's a job. Because she did it 25 years and didn't get paid a penny. Yeah. So, you know, if they told her, they told her tomorrow, well, we're not going to pay anymore, she said, so? <laughs> <laughs> okay, Steve covered a lot of ground there. And I want to back up for just a second. He mentioned that in 1996, Chief Ray Reed and others put together a memorial service for the families of our fallen firefighters. Ray Reed is another person who did a lot for this department, and his service was recently honored when the Dallas Firefighters Museum, with financial support from the Dallas Firefighters Association and the Dallas Retired Firefighters Association, restored a 19th century Dallas Fire Department hose carriage in his honor. That may not sound exciting, but this exquisitely beautiful piece is something you must see to appreciate. I'll put photographs on both firehousetalk.com and dallasfiremuseum.com, but if all possible, you'll want to stop by the museum to see this work of art in person. I think you're going to like it. Now, I wanted to know more about Steve's experience after the fire. Let's go back to him to get his response. As far as I didn't have anything to do with, you know, actually finding them, uh, I, you know, I remember them uh, putting put, uh, putting them on the st- uh, stretcher and rolling them out. That's about as much as I remember about that. But uh, I guess it, it was a blank from then on, as far as what took place, stuff like that. As far as I don't remember getting on the engine, going back to the station or anything. I guess being numb. I guess I'm not sure, but uh, it was just a strange feeling, you know, and, it, and it's obvious now looking back, you know, you know, it's just that it, it, it just, we, we was all in a state of shock, right. you know, that, you know, sure. s- something like that could go bad so quick, you know, you know, and, you know, it's, 
you know that you know they was doing their job. I mean, they was on the truck that day. You know the you know Tom and Ed and Charlie. They was actually on truck fifty six that day. And when they got there, they just yeah. You know, I don't know if they was told to take my line. I don't have any. I don't have any idea because at that time, you know, Tim and I was pulling the big line across to the back. So, but as far as anything else, and you know. You know, I, you know, like y'all was saying, you know, like Chief Franklin, I feel bad for him because, you know, he, he's, he was originally in charge of the deal, but I don't care what anybody says. You know, we was fortunate. A lot of people don't realize this, but we was fortunate that 13 of us wasn't killed that day. We had the, when the back patio collapsed, there was five guys and the last guy, we, Tim and I was at the back, the last guy that stepped off the porch. Within five seconds, that whole back fell in, and if it was thirty seconds sooner, it, it had crushed all five of them. Then, of course, you had Ed and Charlie and Tom. You know, fortunately, you know Tom got out. Uh, then it was uh, me and Captain Little, and I'm not sure who was backing me up uh, going in. We could have very well been killed, and I didn't know this until I don't know how much later, but when we went in on the left side. They told us there was five other guys coming in on the right side of that one-story part, and they had just not quite gotten to that big area when it fell in on me. Mm. So a lot of people just don't realize that there should have been 13 of us killed that day, and you know, only two was killed, but it could have been easily been 13 of us. So, looking back, any lessons learned that you think should be uh, takeaways from this particular incident? I think today, you know, the, the fire department today, you know, realizes the, the the emotional strain, the mental strain that firefighters deal with. You know, back then you know basically you dealt with it you did you dealt dealt with it in your own way and i can tell you from my experience it's not a good thing to deal it with it your own way you know uh i mean the the guilt that you have and we we know of another chief at a out of the golden pheasant fire that he blamed himself for the rest of his life and you know and that and and that's sad i mean because no one gives an order for someone to die it's just that unfortunately for our job you know we get involved in stuff that you know we don't know we don't know the knowns you know all three of us being you know going into a burning building you have no idea uh, elaine anything you'd like to add well like i said i think you know, the fire was a was a life changing experience for mm -hmm. Steve and I both. Mm -hmm. uh, it kind of changed the course of our lives, and uh, I think that um, you know, because of our faith in God, and also because of the good uh, men and women that we work with at the Dallas Fire Department, mm -hmm. that you know we're able to continue on and walk alongside those who who have difficulties and and uh, continue to move forward. And I think that's 
that's been one of the most important things. Yeah. I remember the <clears throat> the next fire we had, I remember pulling out of uh, Station 7s. We pulled out. And headed over there is up off. It was up north, and couldn't see the fire. We seen plenty of smoke, and I, re, I remember looking at Ron Tucker, or it might have been Tim Berry. I don't. I think it was Ron Tucker. And I just looked at him. I said, "I'm telling you right now." I said, "I am so. I am scared to death." And I said, "I I can't do this." And I, and Ron said, "It's going to be okay." We get there. Let's just see what we got. You know. I said, "Ron, I I I can't do this." Fortunately for me, it was a house under construction, and all the thing was burned with all the two befores and stuff. There, uh, you know, yeah. So that yeah. really helped me kind of right. A good good fire to have to yeah. kind after that to kind of yeah. get you back but it, into. But it, you know, but you know, a lot of my career, you know, I'm <laughs> back in my mind. I had, it, it, you know, it, all this in your back of your mind. You just think like that, and it, it kept me a long time from ever becoming an officer because I'd never. I, I, I didn't want to be that person that was in charge of something and something happened to a firefighter. So that kept mm-hmm. me for a long time to be an officer because, you know, and sure. you know, like I that. Can but, understand. You know, the good thing about a lot of this is, you know, you know, unfortunately, you know, tragedies happen, but a lot of good things can come out of those tragedies. And it, it has, if you look back on a lot of things that have, ha- that have been tragic with the fire department, especially the line of duty deaths, Elaine can t- t- tell you more about that is because knowing fa- getting to know families, you would never get to know them. It, it really teaches you, you that second family. Remember how we always talk about that mm-hmm. second family and the right. brotherhood? And there's, it's, it's very true. It's, you know, that, that, you you spend a third of your life technically with someone else as as you know your family. So it's it to me uh, it's been a great ride for me. I I thoroughly enjoyed my whole career with the Dallas Fire Department. You know I got to meet you, Chuck. Got to meet Otto here. You know I met a lot of other people and and I I worked with some great people. I mean really great people and you know and they helped me a lot. You know and. More than anything, you know, the thing about this whole thing is, yes, it was a tragedy, but the, at least a lot of positive came from it. Right. Um, you touched on something I want to uh, follow up with with Mike Otto here uh, as somebody else who had a close call, actually mm-hmm. an extremely close mm-hmm. call. And, you know, Steve mentioned having a little trepidation the next fire that he had. And I'm just wondering, did you experience a little uh, more than usual trepidation the next time you oh, yeah. saw that you had a fire. <laughs> I didn't want any more of it. You know? <laughs> I like, had about enough of that. <laughs> yeah, you know, but I looked at, you know, I'm looking at yeah. the master plan and retirement, yeah. and it's like, yeah. I can't do that yet. And <laughs> it's like, hey, you know, you did this before, you'll do yep. it after, yep. learn some lessons. And <laughs> No, I was real anxious for the next one to get it over with, God, you know, yeah. and, uh, and I hoped that it wouldn't come in at night. Right. That I wouldn't, you know, I never slept worth a dang at the fire station mm-hmm. after that yeah. 2000, December of 2006. Never mm-hmm. slept worth a dang. I always slept with one eye open, you know. <laughs> and, uh, uh, but yeah, getting it over with was, was huge. And it gets in your head, and I don't care who you are, you know. Okay, so we've heard a little bit today about how two of our unsung heroes, retired Fire Department Chaplain Denny Burris and current Chaplain Elaine Maddox, 
have helped the fire department live up to its promise to never forget the fallen and their families. But we've also heard about how a firefighter who survived the Twin Coast fire, Elaine's husband, Steve Maddox, suffered some serious survivor's guilt in the years following the incident. We also heard him mention that the chief in charge of the Golden Pheasant Fire, where four Dallas firefighters were killed in 1964, was haunted by that fire for the rest of his life. We also heard Mike Otto talk about not being able to sleep at the fire station the rest of his career after he was seriously burned in a fire gone bad. Now, I'm going somewhere with this, but first, I want to play you a short clip from a conversation I had with Chief J.J. Franklin, who was the first arriving chief at the Twin Coast Fire. I made a pact with God, and I said, Lord, if I'm going to lose any more of my men, I want to go, I want to go with them. But it's, uh, I'll tell you the honest truth, <clears throat> very people know this, it tore up my nerve system unbelievable uh, I, I put in 10 years after it and every time we go on a fire and they say oh you got one rolling or whatever my knees would start shaking my knees shook for the whole 10 years that fire whatever going to it so it's it, no one ever I never to get any uh, mental health or help or whatever but it it really, really knocked me to my knees. It really did. But the thing of it is, there's very few times, it took years for that thing before it go away. I would play the tapes over and 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 over, constant. And uh, it's one of those things people don't get over that. They can get to the point where they can halfway leave, live with it, but you never get over it. Again, that clip was from my conversation with Chief Franklin. And the commonality I want to point out is that these are normal responses to abnormal situations. And as a firefighter, you're going to be in a lot of abnormal situations. So it is normal and human that you may have some thoughts and emotions in response to all the abnormal stressors you are exposed to. But back in the day, no one gave much thought to the impact of routinely responding to incidents that are someone else's worst nightmare, not to mention the occasional incident where it may be your own nightmare, such as Twin Coves. Now, the firefighters who responded to the Twin Coves fire were not given any kind of debriefing or other follow-up because the prevailing philosophy at the time was, just suck it up, Bubba. But things have evolved since then. Some years later, Denny Burris led the effort to develop a critical incident stress management program, a program which continues to this day and aims to help first responders cope with these kinds of stressors. But you have to take advantage of it for it to work. The DFD has had two of its active duty firefighters commit suicide in just the last few months. And looking back over the years, I've lost count of how many co-workers I've lost to suicide, But I can tell you it's been a lot, and I can tell you that I'm always surprised. It's not like they go around giving us advance notice of how broken they are inside. They don't. They keep it bottled up, and then we're all left wondering what the heck happened. So if you're an active duty firefighter or paramedic, I hope you'll take full advantage of all the resources you now have available to you that weren't available back then. 
There is no need to suffer in silence. Now, before we wrap this up, I want to throw in one more unsung hero to our story. And maybe unsung is not the right word because this person is very well known. But he is unsung in the sense that he has done a lot for the families of the fallen, and very few people know that. And the person I'm referring to is legendary Texas businessman Ray Hunt, whose home on Twin Coves caught fire that fateful morning in 1981. Why Ray Hunt? Well, Because he could have just phoned it in, but he didn't. He could have told his secretary to send a sympathy card and be sure to write in there that we're sending our thoughts and prayers and, uh, oh, send a nice spray to both of those funerals. But he didn't take the easy way out. He showed personal initiative and he took effective action in addition to being empathetic. Here's Ed's widow, Karen. The day of the fire. Around 10.30 that morning, things were calming down, but not really, because as all the other guys that were getting off duty or had not been, had to work that day anything, you know, Ed Davis and all that other group, um, they were all coming over to the house. I mean, the house was just packed. And, but that's good. It made me keep moving, you know, that day. And um, all of a sudden, the doorbell rang and somebody said, Karen, I think you need to come to the door. And I went, because most people were just walking in. Mm-hmm. But it was Ray Hunt. Really? From the house. Yeah. Really? No, I did not know this. And he said, I won't come in and and try and disrupt you in any way. I had to come over. And I said, I do appreciate it, but I just don't understand what could have happened. And he yeah. said, I, me neither, Karen, because he said, all I can think of is we left a Cadillac in there. and." We had what we thought was the best alarm system company and everything else. And yes, we already had the stickers on all the windows showing that there were children here because he's he had small kids about the uh, same age as of mine. So he had stickers on the windows. That, yes, that already we upstairs. Used to issue those. Yes, yep. so we would know where to look for them. Yes. And he said, mm-hmm. you know, we would have totally been in that house the mm-hmm. next day and the next night. And all I keep thinking is this could have happened to us and all my kids could have been dead too. Mm -hmm. And he said, I'm going to try and get to the end of what caused this fire. I promise you. And I said, well, I think that's great, but it's not going to help now. And I said, you know what? I'm really, I really don't want to speak about this anymore right now. I I need to get back in and keep my eye on my kids and all the house. And he said, okay. And he left and he said, I will be calling you. And he did. Is that right? Yeah, he called me quite a few times, and then I guess he called Denny, believe it or not, because Denny was at the house, you know, mm-hmm. when all this was mm-hmm. going on. And he called Denny, and he told Denny, I am so, so upset about this fire, and I, I'm i going to call you, sir, to see if you can agree with me. But he said that that house should never have caught on fire. It caught on fire because the jacuzzi heated with no water in it. Mm-hmm. It's their fault that fire started. Mm. And then not only that, it is the alarm systems company's fault Mm -hmm. because they had had a lot of malfunctions with that and alarms went off and they sent people to the home and no, it wasn't on fire. Right. And no, it wasn't on fire. So, you know, it really boiled down to 
they ignored that. It wasn't a brand new fire like you would have thought if it came from an alarm system company. Mm-hmm. It And that's why it blew up real soon after the boys got inside there. That's, yes. I, that was um, uh, something in uh, looking back at the fire report that I did see that there was a big delay in the reporting of that alarm by the alarm company. And, uh, and the alarm company could have told them the house is vacant. They have not moved in yet. That would have been good information to have. Yes, it would. And you know what? Mr. Hunt told Denny all this. Denny called me and said, what do you think of all this? And I said, it's 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 an accident that never should have happened. That man, he's a millionaire, a multimillionaire, Mm -hmm. and he Mm -hmm. was hiring what he thought was the best. I said, that means what are we hiring? You know, uh, and and Denny said, you know what, Karen, though? I really do think he want he he is asking me if I would pick you up mm-hmm. and bring you to his office. There's a couple other things he would like to discuss with you and he said it's okay if you want me there. Really? And I said, "Oh, I don't want to go alone, then." <laughs> and so he did. He came and picked me up and this was probably weeks later. Is that right? After mm-hmm. the funeral and everything. Mm-hmm. And uh and visited and he said because this was my residence and I was in the process of building it and hiring everybody, I cannot sue anyone because I had insurance. Mm. But he said, I'm really sorry, Karen. I know this would probably be a big undertaking, but I think you need to sue the jacuzzi company uh-huh. and the alarm system company and make sure you have the money that would help you with these kids for college and so forth. He said, mm-hmm. those people did you wrong and me wrong, but it cost lives. Wow. Well, coming from a businessman like Ray Hunt, I'm sure he is able to get the uh, very best advice on things like that. That was probably good counsel, eh? Yes. And, mm-hmm. and he said, uh, I said, well, I don't know any attorneys. I don't even, I don't know where to start on mm-hmm. something like that. He said, I have some pretty good attorneys. Well, of course, everybody who lived in Texas knew who the hunts were. So right. I knew he did. <laughs> and, yep. and that big gold building down mm-hmm. on the mm-hmm. highway there, that's where I went and interviewed. Mm-hmm. And uh, they said, yes, we'll be glad to help you any way we can. Well, I never paid a penny, of course. And, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. and I didn't have any problem with the yeah. fact that people had done the wrong thing. They weren't right. doing their job. And it caused two men their their lives. Now, not only did Mr. Hunt take the personal initiative to make sure that the widows received their due from the two companies responsible for this tragedy, but he has also since then continued to support the fire department by helping to fund the memorial services that Elaine mentioned earlier and by donating land for the Garden of Honor at Restland, a special resting place for police officers and firefighters killed in the line of duty. Perhaps most impressively, you've probably never read anything in the papers about this. Unlike most people who want credit for every good deed they do, Mr. Hunt has done all these things and more while studiously avoiding any publicity-related to his support for the Dallas Fire Department and its line-of-duty death families. 
In conclusion, I want to personally thank all the unsung heroes who go above and beyond their job duties to make the Dallas Fire Department a better organization, one that means what it says when we say we will never forget. And there are a great many that we haven't talked about in this episode. Elaine mentioned a few of them earlier, and she also mentioned the Friends. That's the Friends of the Dallas Fire Department, a small group of community leaders that have steadfastly supported the DFD family for years, and there have been many others who have stepped up. So today's episode of Firehouse Talk is dedicated to our Gold Star families and to all of you who have helped them walk a lonely walk. That is all, KKN 377, Fire Department City of Dallas.